A few years ago, a staff writer for the Washington Post was asked to participate in a work group tasked with studying the newspaper's reading habits of the post-target demographic. Wanting to better understand how people make use of their minutes and hours each day, the writer placed a phone call to the University of Maryland sociologist John Robinson, who's considered the father of time use studies in the United States. And the reporter hoped to validate her work group's assumption that the reason for the decline in newspaper sales and online viewership was that people just didn't have time to read the paper anymore. People were far too busy for that. But Professor Robinson did not validate her assumption. Instead, he told the writer that her team's conclusion could not be accurate, given that people today in 21st century North America have upwards of 30 hours of leisure time each week. The writer was skeptical. 30 hours of leisure time every week? What planet did Mr. Robinson reside on? Certainly not on Earth. We have deadlines and we have to-do lists and we have obligations and meetings and projects to complete and we have laundry to fold and yards to mow and dogs that need to be walked. We have places to go and people to meet and things to do and Twitter feeds to check and here on planet Earth, we're busy people. 30 hours of leisure time? Yeah, right. Talk about a preposterous thing to say. And yet some of us know that there have been other preposterous preposterous things said uh, along the way. Things like, you can have a life that is truly life, and you can have it in abundance. Or this one, whatever your burdens are, you can lay them down. You can pick up freedom and peace in exchange. Sound preposterous? How about this one? For every six days you work, you can take the seventh day off. You can actually do nothing for an entire 24-hour Span. Or this one, if your soul is weary, it can be replenished. If you're feeling deflated, you can abound in hope. Who would say such crazy things? Today we begin a four-part series on how to simplify our too busy lives and how to unclutter our soul. What we're after is not just cleaner closets and more efficient use of our morning commute time. What we're hoping are for straightened out souls. Souls in which space has been cleared for the Holy Spirit to live and breathe and work. Bill Hybels, who is the senior pastor at Willow Creek Community Church in, outside of Chicago, uh, penned the curriculum that our church is going through over the course of the next few weeks in this all-church study called Simplify. And Bill explains the reason he devoted himself to studying the subject of busyness in modern culture is that he noticed a trend when he asked people how they were doing, you know, everyday normal conversation. The typical response included one or more of the following three statements. I'm exhausted. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overscheduled. It wasn't that he heard this kind of response every now and then. He heard it nearly all the time. Busyness has evidently become an epidemic. And Bill knew that the trend must be reversed for the sake of the kingdom of God or for the sake of our own too busy souls. Well, you know, it's my conviction as well that the speed of our lives is killing us. Maybe not physically, although don't get me started on the health ailments we as a society suffer from in direct relation to the stress load that we choose to carry. 
but we're also, it's killing us emotionally and financially and relationally and professionally and spiritually. Speed is not our friend. So let me ask you today, what is speed killing in your life? Where in your life are you gasping for breath or struggling to survive? Quality time with your spouse doesn't happen when you're moving too fast. Sound business decisions don't get made when you're in a hurry. Good money management doesn't happen when you're spending and spending and going all the time. Meaningful connections with God can't take place when we're buzzing in and out of his presence. It's humbling for me to admit that on more than one occasion, I've allowed my life to get too hectic and chaotic as a result of decisions I've made along the way. But part of what compels me to share these things is that I know I'm not the only one struggling to live a simplified life. As I talk with people throughout the week, as I see and hear from people, many of you, by your own admission, say that chaos reigns supreme in your world. Things feel as if they're sometimes spinning out of control. You're working 70 or 80 hours a week and saying, well, it's just for a season, even though you see no end in sight. You're behind on nearly every bill, ever higher debt is your monthly norm. You're too scattered and scheduled, and you're just too plain tired to have an unhurried conversation with your spouse or with your kids. You keep, going more, you keep uh, gaining more and more weight, and you know that the culprit is stress. The list goes on, but I've got good news for you. Jesus offers us a brand new list. We're back to those preposterous things we talked about a few moments ago, like you can abound in hope and you can live a life of peace. The list that Jesus offers us says we can be victorious, we can know abundance, we can live lives that are you know, in control, not out of control. Instead of being exhausted and overwhelmed and overscheduled, we can be rested, we can be confident, we can be well-paced. I know that seems a little preposterous, given our hyper-obligated and road-weary lives that we lead. And I know it seems almost unbelievable, but God says, believe it. It's true. I want to invite you to listen to a story from the Old Testament book of Exodus that I think really exemplifies this whole theme. From Exodus chapter 33. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp, and whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tent entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend, and then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and I found you have found favor with me. You, if you are pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. 
And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now that's a, that's a promise that is central to our discussion today and we're going to come back to that in a moment. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, this is, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now let me give you some context to this story. The reason for this little exchange between Moses and God is that God had asked Moses to fill a particular leadership position for him. God wanted his people, God wanted his people to build a, a tabernacle, a more permanent dwelling place, a structure where his presence could abide. And he thought Moses was the man to head up this project. Now the grooming process for this role had been unfolding for quite some time, and the scene that I just read for you now happened uh, after a number of other instances in Moses' life, like the one where God protected Moses when he was a baby from the Egyptian Pharaoh who was trying to exterminate the Jewish population by killing all male babies at birth. And this conversation between Moses and God happened after Moses had grown incensed with the treatment of his fellow Israelites by the cruel Egyptians and allowed his anger to spill over one day to the point where he took the life of one of the slave drivers and fled in shame to the area of Midian. This conversation happened after Moses had received his call to ministry when he saw God in the form of a burning bush that was not consumed. And it happened after Moses was informed by God that he would be the vessel God would use to deliver his people from bondage and oppression. After Moses' intense struggle with Pharaoh, after the ten plagues that finally caused Pharaoh to concede, after the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, after the divine handle, handing down of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and where God had made a covenant with his people, you see, all of this occurred prior to this calling to be a leader of his people and to build the tabernacle. Moses had already racked up quite a bit of experience with God. And now in chapter 33, he has just one question for God. Will your presence still be with me. Moses had de devoted his entire life to following God, to going God's way at every turn. He hadn't done it perfectly, but he had been faithful. And now here he was facing perhaps the most significant leadership challenge of his life, building a dwelling place for the Most High God, and yet he sensed that the very same God who had been faithful all down through the years was trying to slip out undetected through the side door. And that and, and, and make him go it alone. 
And Moses was a little bit enraged, at least he was scared down to his toes to think of accomplishing something so significant without having God there to direct his steps. He couldn't quite conceive it. And so the little chat, he initiates this little chat between he and God. In today's terms, Moses was getting up in God's face. Actually, there are two things that I hope that we'll take away from this exchange today between this faithful follower, Moses, and his God. And that the first one is this, that we all need to go with God. We all need to go with God. Moses was a man concerned more with God's will than he was his own. And the text says that Moses spoke to God face to face as a man would speak to a friend. We don't achieve that level of intimacy when we're living busy lives, when we're on the fly. We can't breeze into the presence of God every week or every few weeks and lob a few prayer requests his way and expect to be considered the friend of God. This type of relationship has to be cultivated. There's intention and investment and depth. And so we read that Moses set up this tent of meeting outside the Israelites' camp where he received the people when they had questions about spiritual issues. And Moses would go into the tent, and on behalf of his friends and peers, he would solicit input from heaven on how to deal with the problems. And we're not told the size of the tent, but we do know that the tent was symbolic. It reminded people that because of their sin, they were estranged from a holy God. They didn't enjoy the type of intimacy and connection with God that Moses enjoyed. Maybe they were a lot like some of us today who think we have a better way, a better plan. They thought the will of God was a little less intriguing than whatever it is they were self-compelled to do. Maybe some of those Israelites were like people today, soccer parents who wanted to be close to God at least that's what they say they wanted, but they had weekend tournaments with the kids. How are they supposed to fit in church and worship? Maybe some of those Israelites were business owners. You know, sure, it would be nice to serve and to volunteer to help Moses on his leadership decisions, maybe even volunteer to, to clean the tent of meeting from time to time. But when is that supposed to happen? We had, they had board meetings to attend and financials to explain and marketed initiatives to launch. You know, one person can only do so much. I wonder if some of them might have even been retirees. Yes, a little extra time on their hands, but what about their golf game? The bridge club, planning their few months away in Florida. I think some of them may have been 20-somethings, you know, still struggling to sort out life. The idea of God was okay if he could just get them a date and a job. That's what they wanted. The Israelites, you know, might have even been single parents, some of them, working three jobs to pay the rent. Maybe some of them were double-income families with more money than they could spend in good conscience. Is there anyone I haven't offended yet this morning? But I think Moses, you know, looked at this group of people who were very much like us. And they are called beloved ones in Scripture. Loved, beloved people. That's what the Bible calls them. And Moses looked at this group of people, and I think he fumed inside. Actually, we know that's true. In chapter 32, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai where he had just received the two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments etched by the very finger of God. And Moses 
just has had this incredible moment with God the Father during which God establishes a covenant relationship with his people and Moses comes down from that high place literally and figuratively and guess what he finds when he re-enters the ranks of his people. Apparently the people had gotten a little tired and bored with Moses up there on the mountain and all manner of bedlam had ensued in the camp. The people, these beloved people of God were drunk, they were having orgies, they were melting down their precious metals and forming idols out of them. All hell had broken loose among the people that God loved. And upon seeing this chaos that had erupted, the text says Moses did four things. First of all, he smashed the tablets of the law, which symbolized breaking the people's covenant with God. Second, he burned the idol, the golden calf. He reduced it to powder. He threw it out into a small body of water and made the people drink the chalky mix. Evidently, that was to make the, the deviants suffer a little consequence from their grievous sin. Third, he asked his brother Aaron, who had been with the people the entire time, to give a full account of what had been happening. And then fourth, Moses cleaned house. He insisted that everyone who had been involved in the riotous acts of the chaos step forward and he proceeded to take off their heads. Exodus 32, 28 says the 3,000 Israelites died that day. See, Moses had spent his whole life following faithfully after God. And now the people that he had been tasked to lead were following hard after their own wayward desires and the the text says his anger burned. He wasn't angry because people weren't obeying the law. He wasn't angry because the people weren't doing what he said uh, to do. He wasn't angry because of this display of deviance. He was angry because they had lost the vision. Moses burned in anger toward his own people because he knew that the intimacy he'd been enjoying with God was something these people would never know. Not now, anyway, because they were insisting on going their own way. Moses was angry because he wanted more for his people than they wanted for themselves. And I wonder what would happen if Moses was standing here today in our presence. My guess is he would want more for us as well. You know what I think he might tell us? I think he might say, nothing beats going with God, folks. If Moses were here today, maybe he would even take one of these microphones and wander up and down the aisle and begin to talk to us. How has God been faithful to you? How has God been faithful to you? How has God been faithful to this church? In the same way that God protected the newborn baby Moses floating in the basket along the river Nile, in the same way that God provided for Moses as he was raised in an Egyptian household, in the same way that God redeemed and restored and renewed and revived Moses all throughout his life, God has shown up for us, hasn't he? God has done great things for us individually and as a church, and yet so often we strike off into our daily lives assuming he wants nothing to do with all that, and and we say to the athletic tournaments and to the board meetings and to the endless errands and all the things that we think we have to do and we can't hardly all fit into the same week all the while we're breezing right past the God who made us, who loves us, who delights in every detail of our life or we're giving him minimal attention. 
And I think Moses was so irritated back then and would be irritated today because he knows what we know deep down inside our souls, and that is that God's faithfulness cannot be trumped. When we trust our lives to God, God is always faithful. When we trust him with the day-to-day things of our life, when we put him first, God is always faithful. I think Moses would say, you, you, you say you want to be close to God. Well, then make worship a priority. Communicate with God frequently. Don't let anything get in the way of your relationship with God. I believe he'd say, I know you think your way is better. And I know you've got all this stuff in your life to do, but your own life proves it's not true. We need to go with God. Nothing good happens when we go our own way. Secondly, we also need to let God go with us. Like Moses, we need to refuse to go it alone in this, in this life. You've probably had the experience of facing an important meeting. Maybe it was a doctor's appointment or a, a, a meeting with a prospective employer or something, whatever the case. My guess is you enlisted the support of someone before you went. You may have even dragged that person along with you. I can't do this alone. But at minimum, you probably called or texted someone and said, you know, my meeting's in an hour. I would appreciate your prayers. But what you were really saying to that loved one was, this is a really big deal in my life, and it feels less daunting if I know I don't have to do it alone. And that is exactly what Moses was after. Here he was, about to lead this group of people, a very stubborn people, through the process of building this dwelling place for God's presence. Talk about a really big deal in life. And as Moses faced that prospect of getting it launched and getting it done and getting it right, I think he looked to God and he said, I'll do your will, Father, but only if you're right by my side. You want to know what God's response was? Moses says in Exodus 33:15, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. And God replies, I will do the very thing you've asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Doesn't that response give you a deep longing in your own soul? It does me. To be found pleasing by God. To be known by God. Can I tell you a secret today? God is pleased with you and God knows your name. It isn't like that cocktail party where some acquaintance who thinks he knows you so well introduces you as Joe when your name is really John. It's not like that at all. This is the stuff of family. God says, you are my beloved one. You are the one who is known to me. You're loved. And we look at him and we say, either, God, it is you alone that I adore. Or we say, I'm really too busy for this stuff. See, God knows the intention of our heart by the way we invest our life. God knows the intention of our heart by the way we schedule our day or our week, the things we choose to do or not do. Sometimes we choose chaos instead of peace. We choose madness or we choose simplicity. We choose our deal or we choose God's deal. We say, I'm too busy for you, loving and gracious God. Or we say, you know what, God, I will give you everything I've got. Just please stay by my side. 
I'm going to encourage you this morning to insist on going God's way. Demand that he stay by your side. Lay down your burdens. Put down those to-do lists and those projects that seem, you know, like there's so many to complete. And pick up some freedom and abundance instead. And let God dictate the pace of your life. But start by letting him dictate the pace of your day. You know, big things are affected by little things. Big changes start with little changes. And uncluttering your life begins one day at a time by letting God unclutter your day. What am I asking? I'm asking that here and now you start this week by looking at each day. Many of us, I think, approach our days with a little panic rising up in our chest and we ask ourselves, what do I absolutely have to do and get done today? How am I on earth going to get all this in? But this week, instead of taking that normal approach, I'm suggesting you start with another question. Who do I want to become? Who do I want to become? Not what do I have to do, but who do I want to become? When God asked Moses to be a leader and a deliverer for his people, he's That's what God wanted him to become. So for Moses, going with God meant he had to prioritize that goal. For you and me here in the 21st century, our answer to the question of who God wants us to become might not be the deliverer of a nation, but it could be a more devoted husband or wife, a more grateful employee, a more financially responsible adult, a better listener, a kinder parent, Someone who forgives easily. I don't know what the specifics of what it will mean for you to go with God. What I do know is this, that like Moses, when we choose to go with God, there will be adventure, there will be divine protection, there will be this deep-seated satisfaction that bubbles up from within when we're living life in the center of God's will. So who is God asking you to become today? And will you begin to arrange your schedule this week around that? This week, will you plan your days, not according to all the demands of your to-do list, but according to the divine prompting of God? If you've grown distant in your walk with God, will you schedule some time for Bible reading and prayer, even 15 minutes at the start of the day? If your relationship with your spouse has gotten stale, will you carve out some time this week to sit eyeball to eyeball and have a real conversation for a change? If money matters are keeping you up every night and there's no relief in sight, will you swallow the pride pill and finally talk to a counselor or sign up for a financial peace university class, which we just happen to have one starting this week? If out-of-control health issues are affecting your ability to experience peace, let this be the week to finally say enough and work to make a change. I don't know what the situation is that's keeping you from living a more simplified life, but I'd venture to guess that you do, and certainly God does, and between the two of you, I imagine you can work that out. That's what this series is all about, sorting out the chaos in our life. And what that's keeping us from living an uncluttered life. We all have the same amount of time in a week. The time is there to put God first, if we'll do it. The time is also there for us to have leisure time to invest as we wish. We just have to have God-given sight 
on how to do that. Seeing clearly is sometimes a process instead of a one-time thing, but when we have faith that Jesus can heal us from the chaos that is currently ruling our lives, and when we believe down to our toes that someday we'll be able to see, I promise you that God will give us crystal clear sight. God will give us eyes to see and to change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are the one who said that these seemingly who said all of these seemingly preposterous things and how grateful we are as your people today that you actually meant every word that you said. So teach us today and instruct us in the mind-blowing countercultural ways of your word so that we may be people of rest, people of quiet spirits, people of gentle words and peaceful lives, people of profound spiritual and emotional leisure. We love you. We love your word. Give us eyes to see and really see the truth this day. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.